When everyone was staying at home, conversations around home safety changed and more and more people purchased home security systems. But now that people are going out more, we need to talk about personal safety. And that is where Birdie comes in. Birdie is a compact personal alarm system that offers much more than the average alarm. Not only does it emit a piercing loud chirp, it has an attention grabbing strobe light. And that's just the original Birdie. Pre-orders are now open for the Birdie Plus. With a subscription plan, the new Birdie connects to your phone via Bluetooth. Not only will it still be an alarm you can easily keep on your keychain, the updates include the ability to receive a get me out of here pre-recorded phone call with just the touch of a button. Hit it twice and you'll be connected to a representative that not only has your location, but can send help if needed. If you're feeling unsafe, your preset contacts can easily be sent your location as well, making Birdie Plus an extremely helpful tool in self-protection and peace of mind. Birdie is a female-owned company where 5% of profits go to charity. To get your own Birdie or to buy in bulk for all of your friends, visit she'sbirdie.com and use promo code RAIN10 for 10% off your order. Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Nearly 1,000 cars entered Crater Lake National Park on Saturday, July 19, 1952. One of note was a 1951 dark green Pontiac sedan carrying two men, Charles and Albert, who paid the $1 entrance fee to the on-duty ranger and headed to a viewpoint above isolated Annie Creek Canyon. They were in Oregon for business and had cut some free time for themselves, planning an overnight fishing trip with business associates they had met with that morning. And I know, I know, another case set in a national park, and I'm sorry. But a few years ago, I watched the documentary National Parks Adventure in IMAX, narrated by Robert Redford, and as a result, I fell in love with the very idea of national parks, and now all of you have to suffer my obsessions. But I promise, my next episode will completely ignore the existence of places like the John Day Fossil Beds in Central Oregon and Craters of the Moon in Idaho. It may be about a train robbery, and a train is in no way a park, though many national parks do have trains. Charles Culhane and Albert Jones arrived in Klamath Falls, located about 60 miles southeast of Crater Lake, which is 250 miles southeast of Portland, around 10 a.m. that day, meeting with Jack Vaughn and Frank Eberling, who operated Specialized Service Company, an auto parts company in business with General Motors. Colhane, 53, was GM's national sales manager, and Jones, 56, managed GM's Berkeley, California zone office, and they were in Oregon touring Jones' sales area. Colhane, a tall, blue-eyed, person of conservative tastes and habits, was a father to two grown sons. Jones, six feet tall and bespectacled, had been manager of the San Francisco zone office of United Motor Service since 1935. 
United Motor Service, an auto parts manufacturer known today as AC Delco, was acquired as a division of General Motors in a 1918 old-timey business merger where they physically pushed the two buildings together. <laughs> That's how they did it back then. The sky was clear and blue as one car containing Jack Vaughn and a second vehicle with Frank Eberling and Frank's son, Alan, entered the South Park entrance at 2.45 p.m. to meet Charles and Albert at a fishing cabin on Union Creek near Crater Lake. They drove a few miles up Highway 62 and stopped when they spotted the men's Pontiac parked on the side of the road. The trio found it odd, but not immediately concerning, to find their friend's car empty. Its doors hanging open, the keys in the ignition, its occupants' luggage and suit jackets laid out in the back seat next to a camera left untouched. Alan had touched the car's radiator when they first found it empty, saying the car hadn't been parked for long because he had to yank his hand away from its intense heat. They waited, hoping the two who had driven the Pontiac in were merely off sightseeing or having a pee-pee break in the trees. But after their wait stretched to 45 minutes, the men decided to drive back to contact a park ranger for help locating their friends. While 13-year-old Alan stayed in his dad's car at the meeting site in case the missing men returned, which they did not. Park rangers, including Chief Ranger Lou Halleck, returned to the abandoned Pontiac and young Alan, along with Jack and Frank. Fearing the men had fallen into the canyon, two rangers climbed down to search it, while a trail crew of a dozen workers searched the woods until sunset. I really like how 50s it is that they're like, something is amiss here. Let's leave the child. He'll keep an eye on things. <laughs> I mean, he's basically a man. I was going to say. Yeah, already, 13, yeah. that's true. Alan told those in charge that while he waited for them to return, he watched a dark-colored car approach, skid to a stop in the gravel, and then quickly gun it for the highway, as if the driver had come upon a scene they hadn't expected, and fled. At dusk, the search was called off until the next morning. The rangers spent the night in the canyon, with supplies and sleeping bags lowered down so they could rest with moderate comfort. The work resumed as the sun rose, continuing throughout the day, with another sunset confirming the fruitlessness of their second day of searching. Within this time, Chief Halleck began to suspect something other than an accident had occurred. He wrote, quote, At this point, all concerned felt that the possibility of serious injury, accidental death, or becoming lost in the forest was becoming a very remote possibility. At the time, law enforcement was not under the purview of a park ranger's duties. That wasn't enacted until the 70s, after a ranger was shot at Point Reyes National Seashore in California. And since all 200,000 acres of Crater Lake Park is contained on federal land, the FBI took control of the investigation. Quote, The executives apparently had been driven in another car to the spot where they were slain. According to reports, the bodies were found about a quarter mile south of Highway 62, in a wooded area, on Monday, July 21st, by Oregon State Police personnel and a trail crew nearly 48 hours after the men were seemingly absorbed by the surrounding woods. It was an execution-style killing times two. The dead were found with their watches and shoes missing, their wallets emptied. Gags made from a necktie and an undershirt were found stuffed in their mouths, and both had been fatally shot in the head. Together, including their cash, they were carrying $300 in valuables before they were killed, which would be somewhere in the low 3,000s today and only a few cents were found in their trouser pockets. Now that seems like a lot for a trip to the state park. 
Do they have all their stuff from their business trip in the car with them? Yeah, they yeah, did. I guess that would make sense. Yeah, then. everything. Yeah, I think they were going on this trip, and then they were going to be leaving the area. I see. But it's also weird that it seems something happened at the car, but then like a camera is left in the car, which would have been pretty expensive, I would imagine, right. or, or valuable, I yeah, guess. Yeah, they must the have been specifically after the money or there to kill them. Rex Ash, then a 17-year-old member of the trail crew involved in the search, said, quote, I thought, oh, Lordy, there they are. It was really hot, and they had started to bloat. I'd never seen a dead body like that. Joseph F. Santoyana, who was the chief of the FBI's San Diego, California field office, said, It is entirely possible that one man could have committed this crime, but in all probability, two or more were involved. And while accounts from OSP and the FBI say both victims were found on the ground laying face up, Alan Eberling, the 13-year-old witness, said the trail crew had found Jones's corpse sitting upright near a tree. Colhane, though, was indeed on his back, with legs outstretched, his right arm across his chest, and a bullet in his cheek. Jones was about five feet away, with his feet pointing at Colhane's torso. Examining Jones' skull, a fracture, possibly from a gun butt, was discovered, and the bullet fired into the back of his head, right behind his ear, had severed his spinal cord. Both men's dentures were in their front shirt pockets. Their socks on their shoeless feet were spotless, meaning their shoes were taken after they were shot. They had bruised groin areas and had both been shot with an automatic pistol. Do they think that was from, like, being kicked or something? Yeah, I think they, they believe that they struggled I see. and uh... had to be pacified. One one more than the other. I can't remember which, but one of them had more extensive... Oh, like oh, they got kneed in the groin Yeah, I think the one, to... yeah, the one that was hit with, with the gun butt that had the, the, the skull fracture was the one they, they figured probably resisted and probably was shot first. I don't know that I've ever heard referencing to groin bruising, so that's interesting to how it paints the picture of what happened. I wonder how that impacts of like the timing, whether it's done directly before someone's killed. Oh, like, yeah, how like much, the bruising or, and the blood Right, settlement. or was it done closer to the car to get them to follow them, and then he would have had time to bruise on the way over to getting shot? Hard enough to bruise is a real hard hit to the nuts. Yeah. Oh, my God. There were no viable fingerprints on or in the car, and neither were any found on the two shell casings recovered from the crime scene that were initially misidentified as 32 caliber rounds, but were eventually confirmed to be 7.655 millimeter cartridges. Maybe. I am not a gun person, but it seems that both calibers have the same dimensions and can sometimes be used interchangeably in a 7.65 millimeter pistol. But it really doesn't matter in the end because, and I'm sorry to tell you this, these crimes remain unsolved 70 years later. But there may be an unofficial solution to this mystery, which we'll get to in a wee bit. A week after the murders, Saturday, July 26th, J.B. Poster, chief of the Portland Bureau of the FBI, took command of the investigation, arriving in the night and spending a week poring over the evidence. Quote, we are progressing by elimination. In essence, someone did this, and we, the FBI, are looking for them. On August 1st, police arrested a man named William K. Russell. Nearly two weeks earlier, Russell had kidnapped a truck driver in Lake Tahoe and forced the man to drive him to Fernley, Nevada, 70 miles away. That's one way to get a ride. During their voyage, 
William Russell bragged that he had killed the pair at Crater Lake. When he was interviewed by the FBI, Russell said he told the trucker that story, a lie, to intimidate him into compliance. Determined to be a crackpot by the FBI, it was confirmed that William Russell was in Sacramento at the time of the killing. Quote, I didn't get there until Monday, and they were killed on Sunday. On September 19th, Ray Shanklin and Ross Gallagher, both in their early 20s, were pulled over for speeding in California, and their vehicle searched. Officers found $245 in cash, gloves, a crowbar, and two guns, one of which was sent to the FBI for testing. They turned out to be only burglars, not killers, as the gun, a Spanish Mauser-type automatic pistol, was the same style as used in the murders, but its matching caliber was the only link to the case, and the men were dropped as suspects. Retired Medford police officer Bob Allen said, We always figured it was some mob deal from back east. It just didn't sound like anyone from around here. The guys we dealt with in those days were safe burglars and bad check writers. Right, because murders didn't start happening in Oregon until, what, at least the 1980s. That is a ludicrous argument. You know, it was a different time. Our crimes were, were fun. There <laughs> like were no murders. We only have safe Ugh. burglars? So they couldn't have been... Was there anything else that in, in your research that you think that they really could have possibly been the people, or were they just burglars? Oh no, yeah, there was no there was no way. Yeah, okay. It was like they're yeah, they're just they had no like violent criminal history. Okay. They were basically like joyriders and like um I guess I would say like sport burglars. A classic Oregon criminal. Just for funsies. Alan Eberling, thirteen when the crimes occurred, had his own thoughts on the culprit, which he called the George Brown theory. This kid is soon becoming my favorite. He's pretty rad. <laughs> he, I mean, just all this info that he knew. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, he's like, actually, you guys are wrong about literally everything. Yeah, it's, it's really great, too, because he is involved. Uh, he was involved from the beginning, and he he kind of remained so. Always interested in the case, and then was kind of drawn back into it. He says the son of a local contractor committed the Crater Lake murders. Alan claimed George Brown, a local mechanic, became familiar with this son while working on a construction project. George's statement to the county sheriff was that the young man, who always spent his money as soon as it was in his hand, showed up to work on July 21st, the day the bodies were discovered, to collect his week's pay and already had a wad of cash on him, as well as a new gold wristwatch. George never saw the man again after that day, and this will shock you, but the sheriff ignored this recollection of George's, never putting a moment's work into proving or disproving the lead. That is insane because, A, this person has ties to them, right? So they would know who these people are. B, he has a bunch of cash that he never has and a gold watch. That, I would follow up and on that. And dips from work. Yeah, and is never seen again. I have to get going for no particular reason, but you'll never see me again. I feel like as a police officer, wouldn't you be like welcome to these people that just fall in your lap like that like yeah i'll follow up on that ma'am did you not hear them they didn't have those kind of people in oregon back then <laughs> there was another suspect a career criminal who committed major crimes as part of his day-to-day -day life his name was jack santo and he was executed for his crimes in 1955 at san quentin state prison 
but not for the murder of Albert Jones and Charles Colhane. Santo had an alibi, placing him in California when Colhane and Jones were killed at Crater Lake. Jack Santo was the prime suspect in the December 1951 home invasion robbery and murder of Edmund Hansen, a mine promoter. I have no idea what a mine promoter is. Do you, you guys know what that is? Yeah, maybe. you know, he promotes mines. Yes. I would think he's like in charge of getting investors, maybe. Oh, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. This took place in Nevada City, Nevada. Yeah. So maybe he's going around. I mean, I'm totally pulling this on my ass. It just sounds like he'd be like the, the head of the business that goes around and gets rich people to invest in the mines. Yeah, I felt like it was like a, a producer for a movie or something or like a the guy who gets the financing, and yeah. it, you know, something like yeah. that. And then the people would be like the executive producers of the, <laughs> of the mine. Yeah, that's what it sounds I think like that, to I me think that's too. what it is. Okay. I feel like we're accurate. We could look into that, though. <laughs> nah. Santo and his associates were also thought to be the culprits behind a similar home invasion that occurred a month before, during which the victims, one a metals buyer, were tortured with lit matches to their skin until they confessed the location of their stash of money and gold. At his eventual murder trial, Santo's ex-girlfriend rolled on him regarding the October 10, 1952 murders by bludgeon of grocer Guard Young, his three young daughters, and a neighbor boy as they drove to get ice cream. This was in Quincy, California, which is a little over an hour away by highway from the western border of Nevada. Guard Young was robbed of over $7,000 he had just withdrawn from a bank. He and his four small passengers were beaten with a tire iron and stuffed into Young's car trunk. When the bodies were discovered nearly a day later, all but the youngest girl, a three-year-old, were dead. The gang was brazen, but thorough. Santo and his rider die, Emmett Perkins, liked to case a prospective robbery extensively in the days leading up to it driving by the address multiple times per day, staking the location out late into the night, noting the occupants' movements, and their best entry point to the plunder within. Jack Santo and his gang of killer thieves came to be called the Mountain Murder Mob and was thought to be responsible for the murders of at least seven people. But evidence lacked, as did witness identifications of Santo and his compatriots, so charges were never brought in those killings. During the first years of the investigation, the FBI tested 167 guns, tracked down pawned gold watches, and questioned men who had tried to sell used brown Oxfords, the same as the missing shoes from the crime scene, all to no success. In 1962, the 10 year anniversary of the crime, a newspaper article reads quote, Even though there are a number of bizarre clues to the case, every lead that has been run down has ended in a blind alley. And in 1967, a headline no solution in 15 years to murder of executives. Quote, We get several leads each year, the latest not more than six months ago, said John Williams, FBI agent in charge of the Portland office. The case is not closed, and will not be, as long as possible leads turn up. Returning to Jack Santo and his eventual execution, I covered a hometown case over on our Patreon, which took place in Burbank, California, in March of 1953 and which I will detail somewhat briefly here. But if you want all the detail, check us out on Patreon. Okay, the home invasion and murder of Mabel Monahan occurred on the night of March 9th, 1953. A friend called Mabel at 7 p.m. that night, and they spoke shortly, with Monahan detailing her dinner and plans to read a mystery novel until turning in early for the night. 
Mabel was 64 and a widow who in her earlier years had toured solo, then with her husband as vaudevillian roller skaters. She lived alone. Her body was discovered by her gardener on Wednesday, March 11th. The house had been ransacked, holes carved in the walls, the carpet torn up from the floor, and blood spattered on a wall partition. Mabel was lying face down in the hallway, partially inside a closet, with her hands tied behind her back and a bloody pillowcase partially covering her head. There was also a piece of cloth cinched around her neck, the same cloth used to bind her hands. The one crime scene photo I have seen shows the true brutality inflicted upon Mabel Monahan. The shot is black and white and framed low, showing an investigator crouched over the body. The arms are cinched tightly behind her back. The face and head were beaten, bloody, swollen, and fractured. The clothing and the sheet beneath the body are doused in blood. Mabel's face appears frozen in endless agony. It was a terrible death. Ten days after the murder, a safecracker named Baxter Shorter was arrested and questioned by police in connection with the crime. He admitted to being present during the murder and attempted robbery of Mabel Monahan. His motivation for spilling his guts and naming his accomplices was the $5,000 reward Mabel Monahan's daughter had established for information that brought the killer or killers to justice. He was released from custody after agreeing to become a witness for the prosecution, but was never paid for his information. This may have been because Baxter Shorter was kidnapped from his home at gunpoint on April 14th. In an interview, an officer involved with the case said, quote, We'll sure as hell find this guy dead someplace. Those men didn't just take him out to talk. Shorter's wife, Olivia, identified the men who had taken her husband. One, Emmett Perkins, 45, ran an illegal gambling room and had been in prison for auto theft, first-degree robbery, and a parole violation. The other, Jack Santo, was described as a beefy man with dark, wavy hair, glasses, and a violent past, who was a suspect in the Crater Lake murders the year before. In the 1930s and 40s, he'd been arrested for suspicion of kidnapping, assault with a deadly weapon, and attempted murder. Baxter Shorter's body was never found. Mabel Monahan was killed because of a rumor. The criminal underworld had spread tales of a safe inside the home that was said to be stuffed with cash. This was thought to be the case because Mabel was good friends with a Las Vegas casino owner named Tudor Shearer. He had been married to Mabel's daughter, who had given Mabel the house when she moved to New York. As far as anyone knew, the house still belonged to Tudor, and his fabled loot was still inside. Yeah, because that's what people normally do. They move away yeah. and leave all their money in their old house. Come on, idiots. She's had it. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. And when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. 
rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy, like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. The gang that robbed Mabel Monahan consisted of Jack Santo, Emmett Perkins, John True, another safecracker that turned witness for the prosecution, and Barbara Graham, the media's requisite femme fatale. Barbara, 29, had grown up in the system after being abandoned and reclaimed by her mother over and over across her youngest years. She had three sons she barely knew, performed occasional sex work to make ends meet, had an IQ of 114, and spent a ton of time making cash as a seagull, which is a young woman who works in Navy Bar's patrons to buy her drinks, splitting the secretly virginized drink's price with the bartender. She was drawn into the world of the mountain murder mob after beginning work in Perkins' gambling room and becoming an official couple with the man. Nearly two months after the murder, Barbara Graham was spotted around town, shopping casually, as if she and the gang weren't wanted for capital murder. Followed to their apartment hideout by police, she, Santo, and Perkins were arrested, interrogated, and booked into county jail. They were all indicted on charges of murder, robbery, and conspiracy to commit burglary, and would be tried jointly in a trial which began on August 14, 1953, and lasted five weeks. John True testified that as he entered the home, he saw Barbara Graham strike Mabel Monahan multiple times with a gun. Baxter Shorter saw the ex-Vaudevillian homeowner on the floor, bound and bloody. The floor surrounding Mabel was saturated with her blood, and True watched Santo and Perkins cover Mabel's head with a pillowcase, tie her hands behind her back, and drag her off. He then heard the sound of her being struck again in another room. After ransacking the house, they found no money or anything of any real value, though police later found $14,000 worth of jewelry in a purse in a closet. The group left the home and split up after 20 minutes of searching and finding nothing of value worth taking. Baxter Shorter left the Burbank home and went his own way, stopping to telephone an ambulance to be dispatched to possibly save Mabel Monahan's life. But he failed to name Burbank as the location, so the ambulance was unable to find the address, which left Mabel Monahan's body lying undiscovered for two days. Statements provided by Baxter Shorter and John True cast Graham as the aggressive party during the murder of Mabel Monahan, and they may have been accurate. I can see someone with the difficult personal history she had taking out her rage on a woman like Mabel. I can also see Perkins and Santo, both wanted for several other murders not related to Mabel's, having no problem silencing a critically injured woman who had seen at least some of their faces. The coverage of the trial focused almost solely on Barbara Graham, who had previously been convicted of perjury and forgery, her looks, her clothes, her posture, 
Her brown hair, which was always listed incorrectly as blonde or red, were always accompanied by words regarding her physical appearance and truculent attitude. Barbara was put on the stand and testified that she knew the other defendants, but she had not been with them on March 9th. She had been at home with both her young son and husband, Henry, a known heroin user. Henry gave testimony at the trial, which was both vague and contradictory to Barbara's statements. The jury deliberated for five hours and 20 minutes. Graham, Perkins, and Santo were found guilty and sentenced to death in the gas chamber at San Quentin. After the verdict was read, Barbara was heard saying to her attorney, as long as they found me guilty of something I didn't do, I'd rather take the gas chamber than life imprisonment. Perkins, being escorted out of court, commented to reporters, it's a lot of bullshit. It's phony all the way through. Jack Santo and Emmett Perkins were executed at San Quentin on the same day, June 3rd, 1955, at 2.30 p.m. Their bodies went unclaimed after their executions and were cremated at the Napa State Hospital and buried in the Napa State Hospital plot, a mass grave with no individual markers. Quote, Two days before the men entered the gas chamber at San Quentin State Prison, agents made one last attempt to get them to divulge information about the Crater Lake murders, but Santo and Perkins refused to talk. Barbara Graham, who was also scheduled to be executed on June 3rd, was granted two stays of execution in the hours before she died. The initially set time of 10 a.m. was pushed to 10.45, then 11.30, when the act feebly took place. Barbara didn't want to see the witnesses outside of the gas chamber, and she requested a blindfold, receiving her prison nurse's sleep mask instead. Finally, she was led to the chamber where, quote, the cyanide pellets dropped at 11.34 a.m., Again and again she gasped until her head pitched forward for the last time. She died at 11.42 a.m. and was buried at Mount Olivet Cemetery in San Rafael. The Crater Lake double murder lay open for 42 years, with the idea of justice arriving from such a long dormant investigation becoming incredibly unlikely. That was until 1994, when the maternal granddaughter of victim Albert Jones, Alice Sims, woke up one day with a need to find his murderers. She believed the push to action came from the beyond, summoned by her mother, who died the year before. Alice went to her parents' house, where her father handed her an envelope containing news clippings and two sealed letters addressed to newspapers that covered the 1952 crime. The letters, written by her mother, had been left unsent, and Alice found that they were requests from the paper for any additional information related to the case. Alice next contacted the regional FBI office and two newspapers for assistance with her investigation. She also got in touch with Frank Eberling, then 86, who had been part of the trio that discovered Colhane and Jones's Pontiac abandoned. He recalled to Alice that the FBI agents interviewing him in 1952 told him that members of a gang implicated in other murders were just 90 minutes away in Medford, Oregon in the days surrounding the double murder. A newspaper article detailing Alice's Sims' attempt to connect the dots and cast light on the killers was written in the early days of her investigation. A man named David Bergman contacted Alice after reading the article to offer his assistance. His father had worked as an OSP investigator back in the day, and the killings had always rankled him because they carried on unsolved. Bergman provided Alice with photos of the crime scene and volunteered to gather info from any old contacts of his father's that still walked the earth. 
Sims was also contacted by a journalist who informed her of the Jack Santo-led mountain murder mob. Sims submitted a Freedom of Information Act request for the FBI's case report in 2005 and received all 1,400 pages of it a long five years later. Oh my. Comparing their MOs to the murders at Crater Lake, Alice found that the mob often gagged and shot their victims in their never-ending crime wave. She also confirmed Jack Santos' Medford familial connections, a city where he was suspected of multiple burglaries. The brutal nature of their crimes and Santos' connections to the area kept his and Emmett Perkins' name on the list of suspects. But the report showed that Santo dined at a cafe 300 miles away on the day of the murders. But there were too many threads that led back to the mountain murder mob, and Santo's own words gave weight to Alice's belief that he was one of her grandfather's killers. When interviewed regarding the crime, Santo lied about other times he had visited Crater Lake National Park, as well as the date he attended his mother's funeral, along with a million other little lies. As the technology became available to the everyday person, Alice began using genealogy sites to track down relatives of Santo and Perkins, having moderate success and some very uncomfortable conversations with those she found. David Bergman, who had greatly assisted Alice in her search, said ideally they could gain access to the Portland FBI's unredacted case file. David's father, an Oregon State Police investigator, said it contained evidence taken from the scene like clothing and fingernail clippings, which could contain enough of a DNA sample for testing. Wouldn't that be exciting? Yeah. Aside from a few wrong arrests, no suspects have ever been officially named in connection with the murders of Charles Colhane and Albert Jones. Though Alice Sims says she is 99.9% sure she found the answer she was looking for. Quote, I think it was Jack Santo, Emmett Perkins, and Barbara Graham in their gang. If it wasn't them, it was someone connected to the gang. So Alice Sims is the granddaughter of one of the victims. Yes, maternal. So her her, her mother okay. was Albert Jones' daughter. daughter. She hasn't come out to officially say, like, we have a match on DNA or anything like that? I bet yeah. there wasn't any. I don't think so. Yeah, I think she didn't have access to any DNA. And so the genealogy she was doing was just, oh, like, familial research. Okay. So just trying Ancestry. to make connections. Yeah, yeah, not through DNA, but just, Which, just, yeah. that's so cool to, like, wake up one day and make that be your passion. Like, I respect that a lot. Yeah, it's hard work. I've been doing Ancestry stuff for a case, and it's very frustrating and very difficult. So I can't imagine going back that far and trying to, people that you're not even connected to. So you don't know for sure, uh, you know, a parent's name or a relative's right. name. You're like, I think this is the guy. Also to get help from a rando stranger. Yeah. You know, we get a lot of people that offer their, their services on occasion. Yeah. It, you're just taking a chance, but that's pretty cool that he had a connection to the case and was able to get those files like that's yeah that's cool actually speaking of uh believing people and what, what information they give there was a guy who was 24 at the time who was a witness who saw he, he claimed to have seen two men uh kind of walking behind two other men into the woods oh. where he was he was working as a truck driver or, uh delivering canned goods or something like that and he reported to the to the fbi and they discounted him. No, completely. The details of, of his recollection mm. kind of didn't add up with what Got it. happened as far as the thing. So, like, as for example, he said he, from where he was, which was close to where the Pontiac was parked, he said he heard uh, the shots. 
but so, it was like a half a mile oh, away. Oh, right. Uh, so there was a lot of inconsistencies. I don't just, know, yeah. a half a mile? You can hear. It could be, yeah. yeah out in nature. But You'd also, think, yeah. you know, were they just thinking he had heard enough of the case that he wanted to involve himself? Yeah. You know, as I read more articles about it, it seemed to me that he had pulled stuff. He could have pulled things from newspapers uh, and yeah. media, like details about Emmett Perkins. I don't know if you probably don't remember that, but he had a tattoo of a lady on his arm, on his forearm. Right. And another one, of, uh, another tattoo of a, of a person's name on his other arm, I think. And he, this guy, Lincoln Lentz, this witness, knew that stuff. He might have known that after the Barbara Graham case, after the execution, after all of this uh, stuff. Because everything that he reported was basically public knowledge. Yeah, and I, okay. yeah I, I think it seemed that way. And I couldn't tell when he gained that knowledge. But Going back to when they found the car and Alan was left there and the other car came up and then turned around. Mm-hmm. Was that ever followed through that you saw? Yeah, like that did that car. did that match any known vehicle for like the gang or anything? Or did they just there was no way to figure yeah, out? I don't know. I know that the that the FBI and state police tracked down every car that was that mm. came in that was that at least paid and was registered. Right. Because oh, they would have a record right. of that. Yeah, and it was right. like sixteen hundred cars or something that day. Wow. And so they did that and I think they never they never got to it. So who knows? I mean, if it was Perkins and Santo, who knows where that car came from? Right. Yeah. Yeah, it could have been registered to anybody. How interesting. Well, I hope she gets answers. Just yeah. sounds like she has her answer. There's yeah. just no confirmation. Yeah. Yeah. The article that I found uh, was in uh, Alta Online, Alta Magazine, which is a print magazine and also online. It was from uh, their winter 2021 issue. So it was a very recent oh, okay. article. And I know that she's yeah, she's still out there working, but she's older now. I think she's 82, wow. late 70s, early 80s, something like that. And so, you know, basically everyone except, I don't even know if Alan Eberlein is still around. Wow. He's 86 at the time. So I find that really fascinating because it speaks so much to family trauma and generational trauma. You know, she she could have easily said, I never met him. I didn't know the guy. My mom was really young, didn't really, you know, maybe she didn't have a relationship or she didn't talk about him afterwards or something. But you know that Alice's mother was affected by the murder of her father. And so that carried through the generations. And then instead of just like having that burden of unanswered questions, she's like, what can we actually do about this? I feel like that happens a lot, though, that there's some sort of family mystery or unsolved mm. crime and a, a younger generation comes along and wants to try to solve it. Yeah, because I think older generations, it was like, we don't talk about it. It's too sad. It's too emotional. And we don't want to feel our feelings. So we just we don't talk about that person. Well, they might not even have the technology available to them. Right, right. But outside of that, I, I do feel like it was more common to just... Uh, kind of pretend that it didn't exist or something, you know. Hi, hi. Everybody's great. Everybody great now. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm, that doesn't sound right. Everybody great now. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's from a cheese commercial. Oh, like grate the cheese. Sargento. <laughs> Are you serious? No. It definitely will be, though. I like that you work on your feet <laughs> and not on your back. Um, oh. oh. You beat me to it. <laughs> he was my inspiration for getting involved in law enforcement.
Will you? No. Oh, <laughs> you are on fire today, you little shit. <laughs> We've worked together for a big portion of the last 15 years mm -hmm. and we're very close. I feel like we know a lot about each other. We only just discovered last week that we're both obsessed with ancient Greece. And I don't know how she's like, who's your favorite Greek god? Not expecting me to have an answer. And I'm like, well, these are my top three and these are my reasons why. And she's like, oh, my God, I didn't know you were into Wow. <laughs> well, I like Hades, but I think that's inspired by the spinoff novels I read. My historic fiction, if you will. I see. Josh, do you have a favorite? I do. Uh, it's Charon. Oh, yeah. Who, is, who uh, uh, drives the boat that takes you to, to the underworld. underworld. Yeah, that's a good yeah, one. A little boat captain And he man. collects your coins. I know all of this from a video game called Hades. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> I have had to fight Charon many times. He's a worthy, worthy adversary. I know a lot from Percy Jackson and then again, all of my spinoff novels that I'm obsessed with. I even read like dirty novels based on the Greek gods. Don't make fun of me. I, I'm laughing at you. I'm not making fun of you. Antigone's agony. <laughs> Speaking of Antigone, my first email address was Antigone91, and I don't wow. know where the 91 came from. I like to picture people like Naked. either. <laughs> if I find out you were mean to my bird that lived in this room. Point Reyes National Seashore. 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 I'm so sorry. I just blacked out for a minute. Where were they found? What she's saying is your hard work is appreciated. It is. I was listening the whole time until that brief sentence. Give me a break. Until she had to figure out what time it is in Australia. I have nudicles. What? Those are fake dog testicles. But I have them. <laughs> now they're fake them. Josh testicles. I think that might be for people who really want to see a dog's just like a little walnut ball sack all the time. Waggling. I'm specifically thinking of like a, a bulldog's Yeah, they, those sack. big ones. Yeah. big pit bull. Yeah, and those wide like uh, bow legs just really, really framing <laughs> it. Bandy-legged dog. It's like the top, of a, the top of a fancy mirror. And neither were any found on the two shell casings recovered from the crime scene. Crime scene? <laughs> I love a good crime scene. <laughs> Brisky's tea, so baby. Good. Let's get brisky. Ooh. <laughs> <clears throat> This podcast sponsored by Brisk Iced Tea. Come on, Brisk Iced Tea. That's what I do. <laughs> oh, you sicko. Yeah, I wonder what that's called. There's a name for that, isn't there? Yeah, there is. There's a name for everything. What the hell am I talking about? Oh, no, we just never figured out what that was called. <laughs> we, just we just called it sun sneezing. You know that thing? <laughs> sun sneezing. I actually don't mind most bugs. It's the lots of leg ones that freak me out. So there you go. There you go. Milla. That's a lot of legs. Also, I had to smack a tiny spider out of the air that was that was climbing down into our box of Nilla wafers. How dare it? Close was... your boxes of food. Can you imagine reaching into a bag for cookies and you get a spider? I would never recover. Ew, that's like when Julie drank the soda full of ants. <laughs> she still hates ants. I told Chloe a childhood story and I realized I... It's one of those stories you should never speak out loud. Oh, right. About, um, I was at my daycare and I noticed there were a couple of dead flies on the windowsill and I would constantly go like play with them and pull their, their wings off and like kind of dissect them until I finally got caught and got in trouble. But I've always had an obsession with flies. I think they're really cool looking. Have you ever wow. seen the fly? Yeah, of course. All right. Hey man, I don't know.
I love me some Jeff Goldblum yeah, and those, Gina Davis. Those two tall, lanky, hot people. <laughs> they date. I think they dated during The Fly, but then you know she got to be too old for him. Is he? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Has he been married? Several times. But he's not like right now. I they think, get right? too, they get too old for him. And they've been together a long a long time actually, since she was a teenager. I think <laughs> <laughs> since her high school graduation last year. Is Oregon the Australia of America? Oh. I guess Alaska would be. Yeah, Alaska definitely Alaska. is. Well, whatever. I don't think the globe is accurate. I don't. I haven't what? calculated it myself, though. I once had a lover that made that sound. Just kidding. <laughs> Me with a lover. <laughs> wow. Self-burn. 84 years ago, I knew what it was like to have a lover. After Chloe, she's like, you know what? Not a husband stitch, just a just an just all the way. Just, <laughs> Let's finish We're this. We're done with that thing. Basically. <laughs> just my butt. Which I guess is kind of a straw. It connects to my mouth. <laughs> it's a crazy straw. It sure is. <laughs> the craziest one. Oh my god, I want a crazy straw that looks like a human. There's gotta be one. Like, oh, that's a good idea. The intestines and everything. Like the whole innards? <laughs> yeah. Okay, we gotta look for that later. <laughs> we are just flesh straws. <laughs> butthole is mouth. Mouth is butthole. Who in her earlier years? Max Headroom over here. You're snacking on an Alka Seltzer, you know? Hmm. I really want a ginger ale. Ooh. Oh, daddy. <laughs> happy, happy Daddy's <laughs> Day. You know, Daddy has ginger ale. All daddies have ginger ale. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> not mine I love oh, wait. ginger ale he does always have ginger ale <laughs> there's always two liters in the fridge yep. you can go to to my parents fridge right now and there will definitely be mini why bottles of ginger why is that because it's a delicious treat that's gentle on my tummy I think it's mm -hmm. because my much of my family's Canadian and that's a popular well Canadian it is Canada drink. dry I'm getting one after this you do it I'm gonna you're do worth, it you're worth it because Mabel was good friends with a Las Vegas casino owner owner I know I said it wrong. You said it weird. And we <laughs> thought it was funny. Know. Get the kilo case. We're bullies. And guess what? You've been gangbanged. <laughs> it's so not a funny topic. I but know. <laughs> the way we've repurposed it is really funny. Yeah, we're taking it back. That's right. Take it back like it was ever, ever a good term. <laughs> I mean... If you're into that, it's a good term. It's a great term. How was last night? Great. I had a gangbang. It was a gangbang. A it, what? It was a gangbang because it was so great. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or gray because everyone's old. Ah. Definitely a gangbang. <laughs> old people. Having a great time. Train. Oh, God. Choo choo. Not a bad thing. Literally. Oh, boy. I'm not you gonna... can do it. Oh, I mean, Get it's back just... into it. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't you hold... heard the old pov proverb? <laughs> I believe that's in the Bible. Right after the boots with the fur, the whole club was looking at her. <laughs> I won't stop until I get you in your birthday suit. Lick it like a lollipop <laughs> should be licked. Bet that's haunted. At the very least, it's cursed. <laughs> Sometimes my voice makes me want to, like, rip my own face Same. off. <laughs> Same with mine. <laughs> oh.
Yeah, but you know, we're all critical we of do. our places. And yours. <laughs> <laughs> you shut the hell I up. Gotcha. No gangbanging me. <laughs> it's all closed up. Can't. Well, there's a couple places we can still get to. Dear Lord. Sorry how awful that breath just sounded. <laughs> it sounded very weak. <laughs> You're dying. It's just that his is on one line and then father's is on the next line. Oh. And somehow that's destroying me. You're going to have to And my use will your to be memory. alive. Use those brain cells. Oh you God. got it. To the left. That sounds flawless. Like my performance today. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>